Romans chapter 12, uh, start with the definition of love. Verse 1, uh, or, or the first verse we're looking at, verse 9, uh, does this extremely well. Kind of the type of love and what that love looks like. So Paul says this in Romans 12, 9. He says, let love be genuine, as opposed to, say, hypocritical love. Okay, let love be genuine. So that's the kind of love we want to have. I think we all would want that. And then he gives us what that genuine love looks like. It abhors what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil or, or detest. It's a strong dislike for something, what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. So here's my first point for you, is I love genuinely when I cling to what is good and despise what is evil. I love genuinely when I cling to what is good and despise what is evil. Now this is, I believe, the most complex and accurate definition of love. It's not a, a definition of love that our world likes a whole lot right now. Our world loves the first half of this. It you know, clings to what is good or is very accepting. And, it, and it's, I think, portrayed a, a, very, a kind of what you call a caricature of love of not what real love is, but what the world says it is. And the world wants to kind of say, hey, love is just accepting of everything. But before we, we go through the rest of the passage that really requires us to have a proper view of love, I want to pause just a moment to realize uh, this fact, what I think is a fact, that there's not a, per I won't say not a person, that the majority of people that have that view of love are totally inconsistent in actually living it out. They've never really given a whole lot of thought about what real love is. Because I don't believe uh, there's a person here that wants a love that is only one-sided in its application. Like only clings to what is good and does not abhor what is evil. Uh, I'm gonna give you a couple of illustrations and then you can decide for yourself. This is very important that we understand this. The issue is not a love, I don't believe there's not a love that clings to what is good and abhors what is evil. I believe everyone wants that. The real issue is who decides what's good and what's evil. That's what's out there. But most people try to guise that in the sense of, no, love should accept everything. So let me give you an illustration that'll maybe help. Let's pretend our mayor came on TV and, and promoted himself and says, I know what, I love our city. I love the city of Laredo, and I want you guys all to know that I love this city. And his love was the kind of love that the world says love is. It's accepting and embracing of everything. And so he says, because I love this city, I'm, I'm no longer going to have a war on crime. When people break into your homes, when they rape your children, when they bring drugs into our community and those drugs get into your homes and into your kids and destroy your kids' lives, we are going to accept those people because love thinks everything is good and love accepts all things that are good. And so even those people who are destroying your homes, even those people who are hurting your children, even those people who are causing injustices in our community, we must love and accept them because love accepts and thinks all things are good. How many would you like that mayor in our city? That's what I thought. Because love cannot be genuine, cannot be helpful unless it has both sides. See, true love, and I think most people would agree with this, true love wants what is best for the other person. That's true love. But here's where we struggle. When, when a person doesn't want what's best for themselves, 
That's when we have these conflicts with love. And we have to understand that even though a person may not want what is best for them, true love always does want what's best for them. Let me give you a simple example, and I'm using kind of extremes just to make my point. Let's say one person thinks that what's best for him is for him to be able to murder whoever he wants and take their stuff. That's what he thinks is best for him. But you and I know and I think the human race in general knows that murdering someone does not do you any good. And in fact, the statistics, even sociology says this, the more you commit crimes like that, whether it's rape or murder or theft, you become less and less human. You almost become like this evil machine the more you participate in things like that. That's not good for you. And so when a person wants to continue to do something that is not good for them, it is not loving to just accept that and allow them to continue to do that. So when it's done properly, when a person is put in prison because they murder someone, that is a good thing, not only for the community, but for that person. Because prison can restrict them from continuing to commit murders that make them a less and less human and basically almost irredeemable. I'm not saying prison's a great place, but to continue to allow them to do things that make them and dehumanize them themselves is not loving. Stopping them from that is. Are you with me? Now that's, the, that's the very important and foundational to this. I believe everyone ultimately wants a God that demonstrates both acceptance and clinging to good and abhors what is evil or, or disciplines or shows wrath against what is evil. And the fact that God hates what is evil and loves what is good, the fact that he will avenge all evil, as this passage says, and protect all that's good, forms the very basis and motivation for the kind of love that he's going to call you and I to. You will not love like this passage says we're called to love unless you embrace a God who clings to what is good and abhors what is evil. A God who will reward and keep what is good and will inflict wrath and justice properly on what is evil. If you reject any of those things, you will never love like this passage calls us to love because you'd have no hope. You'd never sacrifice for another person that continued to harm you over and over again if you felt there would never be justice upon that person. If you were the only way that person would ever experience justice and they continued to harm you over and over and over and over again, you would have to take out justice on them for your own sake if you knew that no one would ever come and bring justice. But the fact that we know we serve a God who will bring justice to this earth gives us the strength to return good for evil. It's the only way we would do that. So let's move on and see what it has to say. So now let's talk about the first arena in which Paul makes some of these statements that the Christian within the church. How are we to love within the, ch the church? He says in verse 10, moving on, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. So now he's talking about within the church. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. 
Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So he just rattles off all these commands of random things seemingly that aren't necessarily connected but all capture what it looks like to love within the Christian community. And here's kind of how I've broken it up in its statement to kind of see all aspects of it of genuineness is I love fellow Christians with my affections, with my attitudes, and with my actions. And you see that in here. You see all of these things. There's affections, right? What we long for, I have brotherly affection. We actually have to, I mean, this is what's hard. You can't just pretend you like the person. Look at the person next to you right now. You actually have to like them. You have to feel like, I know you don't all want to sit by that person, but the Bible commands you to have affection for them. Now, if it's not your wife, I'm just going to restrain that affection a little bit, all right? Make sure it's in proper proportion to who you're sitting next to. But you see affections in here. You see attitudes of perseverance, of patience, of zeal, of fervency, and you see actions. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Be constant in prayer. You know, rejoice in hope. There's another affection of rejoicing. So all these things talk about what true genuine love is. You know what genuine is? The word genuine has this concept that when you take something and you cut it in half, when you open it up, it's exactly the same all the way through. Right? It's not like a, a, a chunk of lead that's been painted gold on the outside, and you go, oh, wow, and then you cut into it, and you go, whoa. That's what hypocrisy is. But genuine means it's the same all the way through. And that's what's beautiful about these commands is, is Paul says, we are to love each other in this body genuinely. We can't just do it with our actions. Here's what a lot of us do, and we do this in our homes. Well, I'm not going to say that. Other people in our city do this. None of one, I've never seen anyone in our church do this. I know I've never done this, but we do stuff like this. I got to take the garbage out again? I mean, come on, I'm only the one that takes the garbage out. What's going on? I'm taking the garbage out. Why, why do I have to take the garbage out? Right? You took the garbage out, right? Your actions showed love, but do you feel loved when someone does it for you like that? No, because there's an attitude issue, isn't there? Oh, I got to take my wife out on a date again. It's like every week she wants to go on a date. All right, I'm taking you. Whatever you want to spend, honey, wherever you want to go, you pick it. I don't care. I'll spend it. Whatever we got to spend. Just, can we just get this over with? But I'm going to take you out. How loving does that feel? Right? That's an action. I'm doing it. Right? Isn't that enough? Love has to be active. No, that's not genuine love because if there's not affection with it, if there's not an attitude with it, and actions, it's not genuine. The only way you can have this kind of love is to know that God is 100% for you and that he will cling to what is good. He will reward what is good. He will sustain what is good. So for you to have a bad attitude in doing something as good is simply for you to say, God, I don't trust you that you think this is important and that you're gonna make what is good stand it's basically a lack of faith in God. See, it's not just our actions that need to be confronted. It's our attitudes and our affections. Those are all the areas in which we need to repent in, and that's true repentance. Sometimes we have to do something, say, okay, I'm still going to take the garbage out, but while you're taking the garbage out, you should repent and say, God, why don't I have a better attitude about this because this is something that's loving towards my family. Why don't I trust you? 
try it once. Try repenting of your attitude or your affections and you'll start a whole new journey with God with things that you maybe don't want to do. But Paul is talking about that and how we treat one another within the church. I love the fact that whenever I do a new attenders reception, we had one just about a week ago, I hear stories of this about our church all the time. I hear it in our small groups, but uh, people come in and say, man, you know, the first time I came, we just were so loved. I mean, it felt like we knew these people from the very beginning, and, and you guys immediately warmly embrace people demonstrating this principle. In fact, one lady shared a story that I asked if I could share it because it so captured this really well. Her name is Ramona, and here's her testimony on coming to Grace. So I started attending Grace the summer of 2016, so about six months ago. My sister, my brother-in-law, and my niece had invited me to attend. They had been attending for a while, and they all talked wonders about the church and its people. I saw how they would light up every time they spoke about the church. My brother-in-law had been going through a tough time with a series of serious medical problems, and they were forced to be out of town often for his medical treatments. So my mother and I would make, uh, take turns staying with my sister's six kids at their home. During these times, I saw how strangers would come to my sister's house and deliver dinner for the kids. Stranger to me, but they were friendly strangers. It seemed like they had known my sister and her family for years. Nice people, caring people, and they all said they were praying for us. They were the church people, my niece said. I was very moved and wanted to know who these people were to say thank you. Thank you for all your help. So one day, after many invites, I decided to accept my niece's invitation and went to a Sunday 10 o'clock service. I was so shocked at the way I felt as soon as I walked in, and I immediately understood that light-up expression I had been seeing in my sister and her family uh, where it came from. I got it. I've been attending Sunday service since then. I extended the invitation to my husband and my three daughters and their families. I think my husband came with me out of curiosity to see what and who I was talking about so much, and he liked it. Recently, my youngest daughter and her son started attending Sunday services regularly as well. It took her just one time too, and she was hooked. Although our family struggles are far from over, I'm glad we stumbled onto grace when we did. I believe that it was God's way of preparing us for what was to come. I will be forever grateful to my beautiful niece for insisting that I come with her to church. Thank you all of the wonderful people of Grace for being so kind to me and my family. Do you see what this kind of love does when others see it? When we treat each other like family, when we have that kind of affection, when we sacrifice, when we love each other, it not only changes those who are in their path, but even those who are watching from outside it. That's what Paul is talking about here as he talks about love. The second category we see after the definition is, is what love looks like or authentic love looks like in the world or outside it. And, and he talks about this uh, starting in verse 14. He says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's my uh, next point on on love and love within the world, a greater context, is I love non-Christians by repaying evil with good. I love non-Christians by repaying evil with good. So when evil is done to us, we repay it with good. Now, I need to give you a little bit of uh, context and, and some guidelines for this passage because these are passages that are often misunderstood and misrepresented often by people. And so I want to give you a little uh, quick Bible study lesson right now. Okay, so put your school caps on for a minute and your theology caps. Tr- at least try to look smart, if nothing else, all right? Do the best you can. I know it's hard for some of you, but we love you anyways. I'm kidding. Okay, so most important, two, two things that are really important when you read the Bible. The first is, a, a, well, it's kind of the same, but how you apply it, is understanding the Bible in its context. That means when you read a, a verse or a, a passage or a phrase, you say, what's around it? What's the context of this passage so I make sure I understand it in its context? Same is true when, if you've ever been quoted by a reporter, and you hear this all the time with people that are in the public eye, and, and they say something, and the reporters come, and they, they take a couple little snippets out of it, and these are actually words that that person said, but they're ripped totally out of context, and it actually says something that was totally different than what they meant, okay? That's all we're doing here. Let's not do to God what we would never want a reporter to do to us. Okay, so keeping it in its immediate context. That's the first thing is making sure you understand what's being said around it so I understand what it's saying. The second context is the greater context of the Bible. Meaning, when God talks about love, he can't complete it in one tiny little paragraph like this one in the Bible It's gonna give us a certain nuance of it, but if we wanna know the fullness of what God thinks about love, we might have to look throughout the Bible elsewhere and add that to it or use that to help guide our understanding here. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's important. So here's my thought on this passage. And many commentators think differently about it, but some think similar to me, and I'm just gonna tell you why I think this about this passage, and I'm gonna tell you that I may be wrong, okay? So you may be getting a wrong message today, it's possible. But here's, here's what I think. I think every command in this passage, in particular, applies to how we relate to non-believers. Okay, I may be wrong about that. Some commentators, most commentators think that there's a mix of both. Some of these are for Christians, some of them are non-Christians. And here's my greater point. If we look across the whole Bible, The fact is, I'm not gonna teach you anything that's wrong today because these things can be applied to both end. The only difference it would be is I'm using this passage to teach you something that would be better to teach you from a different passage. That's the worst that could happen today. But here's why I think this refers specifically to non-Christians. Because it was common in their day to sandwich a passage with main points around what they were teaching. And if you look at this paragraph, it starts with, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. It's obviously speaking to those who are your enemies. 
It ends with the same thing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And most of the passages within it are talking about how we relate to those who are opposed to us. Now, some of them could go either way, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But here's why I believe that that specific command in this section is really for non-believers when we relate to them. Because most of us don't struggle to rejoice with our Christian brothers and sisters who we have great affection for when they rejoice. We celebrate with them. Most of us don't have a hard time weeping with our Christian brothers and sisters when they weep. Here's where we struggle. When a person that's been really rude to you and even evil to you is rejoicing because something in this world seems really great to them, you want to weep, don't you? God, Lord, why don't you rain down your justice on them? Come on, God. And when they're weeping, what are you doing? You're going, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Look at that, man. I hit that one coming. I mean, let's be honest. I'm not saying you guys. I'm saying other people in the world do things like that and feel that way at times. So I believe these are passages that are, are speaking to us based on how we would naturally respond to people who are our enemies. And Paul's saying no. When your enemy rejoices, you need to have the courage to, and love to rejoice with them. And when they weep, you need to enter into their grief with them as well. So that's the first thing we need to understand is that I think all these are applying to them. Now, whether they do or don't, we can show that elsewhere in the Bible, we still have to do these things. It doesn't let us off. But that's important that we understand that aspect of it, and that's how I'm interpreting it as we go. The other thing that's important in here is to understand uh, some things that this doesn't say, and there's major misunderstandings because of key concepts we need to know in this passage to avoid wrong interpretations of passages like this or ones just like it. Let me show two things that are very important in here. The fact that we are uh, to return good when we get evil in no way is a statement that says any type of punitive justice is wrong or bad. That's not what this passage is saying. It's used a lot of times in that way. See, we should never have any punitive or, or punishment-like justice because the Bible says you return good for evil. Well, that's assuming one thing that's a big assumption. It's assuming that the Bible says any types of punishment are automatically wrong. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible sees just punishment as being a good thing. It's good for society. You can find verses all over the Bible that talk about justice and punishment when it's done properly as being good. In fact, right in this passage, what does it say? God doesn't say, hey, you guys should treat them this way because compassion is mine, saith the Lord, and I'm never going to do anything harmful towards anyone, and I'm always going to accept everyone whether they're evil or good. Is that what the passage says? It doesn't, does it? It says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And when God repays, one thing you know is absolutely true. It'll always be right. It'll always be just. And it'll always be exactly what is necessary for the situation. You see, these passages are geared towards us as individuals. 
And they're geared at speaking towards our normal brokenness that when you and I are treated unjustly, here's what we do as individuals by nature. I don't care how good a person you are. Our first reaction to an injustice is overreaction. Because in our brokenness, we think of ourselves first and foremost. So if someone steps on our toe in an evil way, we're going to step on both of their toes. I'll show you for stepping on my toe. I'm not just stepping on one. I'm stepping on both of them. Now, we may not carry that out, but that's our natural reaction. And so this passage speaks to our natural reaction to always see ourselves as just And even in our overreactions to justify our actions, it improperly harming someone else that maybe did or didn't mean to harm us. So these are individual commands. Never are these given in the context of a community or government and saying the government should do that because next chapter, guess what? Chapter 13, Paul's going to talk about government wielding the sword, being the servant of God to bring wrath on injustice and that we need to trust them as God's servants in the world, even though they may be broken. So these are talking about individuals. In no way does this command say that punitive justice is bad. It's speaking within this greater context. And so this passage is basically confronting those things. In fact, let me give you a little bit of information that's often misunderstood in here. Paul, in this passage, is quoting the Old Testament. So he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me show with you what it means. Uh, If we go to uh, Proverbs 25, we'll see this quoted. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So we're going to do a teeny little Bible study right now to figure out what that means. Let me tell you what one of the most popular interpretations of this is. That in that culture, and this is true, it was true of those cultures back in those days, when you wanted to start a fire, fire was very important. You didn't have it as easily as you did now. A person might walk through town with some hot coals from another person's fire, and they would walk home, and they would use those coals to start another fire. And as you walked, you could imagine what those coals did. They started to burn out. And so one way in which you could help that person is you saw them, if you had some coals and you saw theirs were going bad, is you would dump your coals into their little bin and it would just kind of help them and, and you were encouraging them. You are doing a good to them, okay? That's absolutely true. We know that's culturally true. And so some people interpret this as, well, that's what you're doing. You're heaping burning coals. You're helping them out by doing that. And so this is really a positive thing, just enforcing and doing good for evil, okay? I don't believe that's what that means because it's never used like that in the Bible. This is from the Old Testament, and the Bible is always the best interpreter of the Bible. I believe, as you're gonna see, that heaping burning coals on a person's head is actually bringing judgment on them, that you do that by doing good for them. And I wanna show you why I believe that. I'm gonna, I just pulled out two passages, but I searched the Old Testament. I looked at every single passage in which burning coals is used, between a righteous person or a good person and a bad person, and without exception, it's always used in this manner. It says this, here's the psalmist who's just experienced injustice. It says, let him, meaning God, rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, I'm not a theologian or a scholar, but I I don't think that's a positive thing, is it? 
You think he's trying to help that guy out? Probably not, all right? Maybe you might see it different. Let me go to another one. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, and no more to rise. Hmm, positive or not positive? Yeah, you look them all up. It wouldn't even be consistent with the passage itself because the passage says, God says, let me give vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so what he's saying here, I think is what we all really want, ultimately, is we're gonna, we can return kindness to an enemy because in doing so, it'll bring God's perfect justice upon them in a way that you and I could never carry out. And here's practically now how I think that works out. This is why this is good and it's not just wishing wicked on that person. Because I believe when, when coals come or when judgment comes or, or something like that comes, one of two things happen. It starts in our mind. That person might go, oh my goodness, they did that to me after I did that to them. And they, and they sense guilt and shame in, in that judgment. And in that shame and judgment, and they sense it even from God, they repent and they say, God, please forgive me for being so horrible to that person. And now you have the best case scenario. That person has turned and repented because of your kindness toward them and God's judgment. Whereas how many of you have done this? You know, someone steps on your toes wrongly and you go, oh man, he just stepped on my toe. And I'm gonna, I'm, that's it, I'm stepping on his toes, I'm stepping on his hands, I'm stepping on his face. That'll make him repent and feel better about me. Any luck with those? No. See, many of us live in a community with family members that we've been distant from or disconnected from for generation after generation after generation. In fact, we don't even know why we're angry at each other, but we know we need to be angry with each other because all we've ever done is return evil for evil. And God's saying, they'll get what's coming to them one way or the other. Either through repentance, my judgment will fall upon my son, or if they don't, my judgment will fall upon them. But don't you worry about it. You just do what I've asked you to do. And the best way you can bring judgment on a person who might need it is to return kindness for evil. You see, one of the problems is we think we know what's best in the situation. And as individuals, we're often wrong. And these passages help us do one of two things for sure. Not make the decision ourselves, but bring God into the picture. And in a, in a practical way, that may mean the community, like the government and their laws, let the court system that is a little more objective than we are as individuals come in and see this. Let the church community, who can be a little bit more objective than you are personally, come in and help make that decision. Let the people of Israel come in who can be a little bit more objective, make that decision and bring about justice in a way that's better than any of us would all by ourselves. So how in the world do we do this? That's where I want to close today. My last point is this. I want to start with the point and then finish with this thought. I'm capable of this kind of love when I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm capable of this kind of love when I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. 
1 John 4 says this, in this is love. Now he's defining love again in terms of an illustration. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me explain that word. It's only used a handful of times in the Bible. Very important word. It means the satisfactory substitute. A satisfactory sacrifice of a substitute. That's what Jesus came for us. He became the satisfactory substitute, meaning that God poured out his wrath on him and satisfied his wrath in him for our sins. And it satisfied God. He did that. That showed love for us in a way we've never experienced. He took the evil that we deserved so he could show us the kindness that he deserved. And then he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus came to earth to be a living illustration of this whole passage. He clung to what was good. He confronted what was evil. Remember Jesus uh, welcoming immoral prostitutes? And did he ever say, you know, continue in that behavior? I just love you anyways. No, every time he said, go and sin no more. Remember he came to the the religious leaders and some of his harshest words, I mean almost curse-like words, were spoken to these religious leaders that that on the outside were the most clean and, and respectable people in their society. But it was only outward. It was only in their actions. Their attitudes and their affections, the Bible says, were far from God. And it takes all of those things for us to have genuine love. And so Jesus confronted what was evil because their hearts were far from a God who on the outside they were just pretending that they loved Jesus was fervent in his affection for his disciples his 12 disciples whom he had no relationship with had never met before became like his brothers and he loved them to the very end he was zealous in his teaching every aspect that we see in here about love for his brothers Jesus modified and and modeled perfect but the apex of his ministry came at his death and resurrection to be treated with such evil and injustice after living a sinless life is almost unfathomable I mean he experienced from humanity uh, what he experienced from humanity in that injustice, the, the whipping, the beating, the mocking, the spitting, the nailing on that cross, what he experienced, this is what we have to understand, what he experienced from us, the pain that we inflicted on him as human beings, paled in comparison to the spiritual wrath he experienced from his father against all the sin that was heaped upon his shoulders. Your sin, my sin, your burning coals, my burning coals. Jesus returned good for evil, but guess what? He didn't get this promise that God would pour out those burning coals on others. His promise was, hey, you return good for evil, Jesus, and then all those burning coals that should be on them, I'm gonna dump them on you instead. How do you like that deal? It's the most amazing deal this world has ever known. 
so that he could cling to broken people like you and me who've put their faith and trust in his perfect work. And that love, that's a love that this world will never understand, never know apart from him. Jesus humbly showed us what God's wrath would look like so that we would never have to experience it personally. That's what he's talking about. So here's what I want to leave you with. Two very practical applications. When you look at the cross, it shows you a love that this world could never produce. When you accept what Jesus did for you on the cross, when you receive that love, it begins to produce in you a love that nothing in this world can produce in you. So I want to ask you two very important questions. The first is, is, is how that plays out in your life within the church. Are you experiencing the love that Paul talks about here in our church? Do you have this kind of affection? Do you have this kind of attitude? Do you have this kind of actions towards your fellow believers? Are you excited to spend time with other believers or is this just a place that you show up to once a week and then you head out to the places that you really like to be? Because if that's the case, then I'm not sure you've ever really experienced this love. You see, here's what's so weird about the church is when you've experienced that love from Jesus, you begin to love people who don't look like you, they don't dress like you, they don't have the same socioeconomic class as you, they're not educated the same as you, they don't even smell like you. But for some strange reason, you have this love for them that's unexplainable because they're part of the same family. Have you experienced that? Because that's what God wants for you. That's what he came to give us within this body. A love that would make us actually sacrifice, saying, you know what, I'm willing to hurt. I'm willing to go without because I want to make sure this person is taken care of. I love them that much, like I love my own family. Who is it that God's calling you to show this kind of brotherly love or fervent service to? Who is it? And will you accept the challenge? The other aspect comes with our, 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 our struggle to love the world. Maybe you're struggling to return uh, evil from someone that's hurt you with good. Maybe you're buying into the lie that most of us buy into, that if I just stay bitter, if I remain angry, if I stay hardened and unforgiven towards that person, then they'll ultimately get what's coming to them. Man, if I just hang on to this, I'm going to show them that what they did was wrong. And, and you know, I get it. We all naturally go there. I love how one person put it. They said, bitterness or anger towards your enemy is a poison that you drink thinking that it'll hurt the other person. It never works. You're the one that's losing out. In fact, you're both losing out because that'll never draw that person to any kind of change, nor will it bring them into a proper relationship with God. When you choose to let God take care of that and trust that he'll take care of it 
infinitely better than you and I could, then you'll begin to see a change both in you and in them. I mean, consider Christ on the cross. Think of his kindness toward our evil that protected us from God's wrath. And if you're a Christian, it's this unbelievable kindness in him that, that you know broke your heart. When I, that's what totally changed me. When I first recognized what Jesus had done, when I recognized that I deserved that, that that judgment that fell on him should have been mine, that melted my heart. It made me totally say, how can I continue to act this way when you took the punishment for it? That melted me. It was his kindness that led to my repentance, not his judgment hammering me down. And now God says, you who have experienced this, go and do the same to those around you. Both practically and spiritually, the best way to get back at those who have hurt you is to bless them, not curse them, to overcome their evil with good. So who is that? Who's that person? Who are those people? Who's that group? in your life that, that you've continued to harbor this anger. You've wanted to be vengeful towards them or you've wanted to take justice into your own hands and God is calling you to love them in a way that nothing in this world will ever tell you to love them like. Imagine a church filled with people who loved and served each other with this kind of affection and zeal. A church where when you came here, you knew this church had your back. Whether you blew it or whether you were living great at that moment, you knew that they cared about your best for you no matter what. Imagine a church that loved its community the way this passage talks about and, and started to return good for evil when someone slandered you, that you just remained quiet or even had the courage to speak kindly of things that were good in that person. Imagine a church that, that when they drove down McPherson and someone cut them off, you could hold up two fingers in peace rather than just one. Imagine if we learned to return good for evil, how different the city could be with hundreds of people living like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for thank you for teaching us these truths that are, are beyond anything this world could ever have taught us. But most of all, thank you for Jesus who didn't just teach them who didn't just model them, but who made them available to any of us who will place our faith and trust in him. Lord, help us, whether it's for the first time, receive that love and sacrifice for him, or if we've been walking with him for years, to lean into that love, to let that love continue to change us so that we might be your light and your love in our church and in our community. It's in your name we pray. Amen.